Hello, one and all, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble Dungeon Master, Brendan Lee Mulligan. Gang, this is the podcast where we talk about all things tabletop and how to run awesome games at your table for your friends, virtually or otherwise. Today, oh my goodness, my pal and yours is here. I'm going to start listing credits, and it's going to be crazy because I'm going to list the first credit, and you're going to know who this person is pretty much right away, but then I'm going to list a zillion more because this person is so goddamn cool and has done so much of your and my favorite stuff. The co-creator and co-host of My Brother, My Brother and Me, uh, an advice podcast for the modern era, DM for the Adventure Zone campaign, Balance and Keeper for Amnesty, currently playing Sir Fitzroy Maplecourt on the campaign graduation, led uh, by his brother Travis McElroy, as well as the composer for the vast majority of the music for the Adventure Zone. He is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel series based on the Adventure Zone with artist Carrie Peach, co-host of the podcast Wonderful, along with his wife Rachel, where they discuss uh, all the things they enjoy, things they feel passionate about, and other positive type things. Positivity, how about that? Co-star of the animated film Trolls World Tour. I'm gonna throw another one in here that's not even on this list, but just one that I love because uh, uh, with his brother Justin McElroy, Monster Factory brings me nonstop joy in my own personal life. I watch it all the time. It makes me so, so happy. As well as being on Tiny Heist, Dimension 20's first side quest. Please welcome Mr. Griffin! McElroy! Everybody left. Everybody's asleep. Everybody was <laughs> everybody was waiting for that to be over, but it kept going, and so they went right to bed. They climbed in bed and fell asleep in their bed. <laughs> but thank you. It's a, it's a it's a delight to be here. I'm very excited to talk about uh, Dungeons and Dragons with you. Dungeons and Dragons. Did you uh, call this a vodcast, by the way? I did call it a vod because it is a podcast with a video component. So vodcast. Yeah. Does it? Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unlike the extremely technical term podcast, mm. with those you know the you know, pods, the things we're all familiar with. Yeah. An yeah. MP3 is like a pod of sound, and you put it, and <laughs> and then your phone is like a Keurig coffee machine, and then you. Pierce your phone and the and you, jokes come out. And you pierce the phone, it comes out. True story about Curix, immediate, just rocketing into tangents uh, right out of the gate. Uh, Noam Chomsky apparently was gifted a Keurig for his like 70th birthday or something like that. One of his, his younger assistants gifted him a Keurig and he had the little pods with it. And he was like, oh, another way to make coffee. Thank you very much. And the assistants like went away and they came back and he was like, oh, oh can, I, can I make you some coffee? And they were like, sure. Uh, and he brought out two almost transparent cups of brownish hot water and put them down in front of his assistants. And they were like, no. What's going on? Are you not? He's like, it's from the Keurig. Uh, and they went in and looked at it, and he had been reusing the same Keurig pod <laughs> over and over. And they looked at him and went, No, you use a new one each time. And he immediately got so sad and went, Oh, this is completely unsustainable. This is going to be terrible for the environment and terrible for it. Like the idea of a dude who. Off the bat was like, oh, the old, like, surely my assistants wouldn't have gotten me a terrible nightmare future machine where you have to, you can't use pods more than once. Yeah. Uh, which uh, is a deeply delightful story, both for what it says about Noam Chomsky uh, and also for the envisioning of nasty, uh, nasty, nasty hot water coffee. <laughs> um, I've done that. I've done that before at the, I think at the 
Vox office or some office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I don't know how he could not think he made a mistake. <laughs> it's bad. It's really, really bad. It's instantly bad. For sure. For sure. For sure. And I do, and I, I, I do appreciate that. And it's a strong move from no, mm-hmm. for sure. No sure. matter how you slice it. Um, so uh, I want to jump in. There's so much stuff that we could talk about today. Um, uh, uh, Griffin, first of all, uh, we have played together a yes. couple times, which I am so deeply grateful for. I have run D&D for you and your family with Tiny Heist. You were kind enough to jump into a Fantasy High one-shot with the Fearbold Ficus, who still gets fan art that pops up, and we get cosplayers <laughs> for Ficus all the time, which I truly oh, love. Um, uh, uh, and you guys were so kind to have me come up and actually do a Taz live show yeah. uh, at Comic-Con, which was so goddamn cool. Because San Diego Comic-Con in 1996 was the first time that I truly dove headfirst into nerd stuff. It was the first video game I ever played. It was oh. the first... Uh, uh, it was the first time I bought Magic the Gathering cards. It was like were the you, beginning. Were you a sports guy before that? What happened? What were you? What were I, you when you were pupating? When I was pupating, so 1996, I was eight years old. Prior to that, my my dorkness was actually like hardcore literary fantasy, like the idea of okay. like. I was a, I was a little book reading kid, so I was deep right. in books and also deep in animal and dinosaur facts. I do feel that dinosaurs are the gateway dork fandom to every to everything else. Like if you got a little, well, kids they're, they're, dra- they're dragons. They're, they're basically they're, they're dragons. <laughs> we can... a lot of people and a lot of people aren't brave enough to say that, but dinosaurs are <laughs> essentially dragons. It is a funny thing that we have this like pan global whatever culture you come from does have something buried in it somewhere where they're like by the way heads up enormous reptiles (laughs) uh just staggering powerful yeah we have this dinosaur park that's like a walking trail this huge walking trail just outside of austin uh, which is where i live uh and we'll take our son there uh, because it's like one of the few like kid-friendly big open places that isn't like mobbed with people every day so it's like one of the like covid friendly places we can take him and on uh each like little exhibit there's like a dinosaur just like hiding out in some trees and you look at it and it tells you like the facts and what their name translates to and uh just some details about it but then it says like where they're found and it's always like central asia australia and texas and it's like dinosaur dinosaurs what were you guys do? Y'all got around. So well-traveled all over the place. It is very, there is a very funny thing too in terms of the human ability to take pride in things. Like if you find out that a very cool dinosaur was in your spot, like I remember it was like, like reading some dinosaur, it might've been like a guanodon or something, like the 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 hard, hard head, yeah. the like ram head ones, where it was like the Eastern seaboard of the United States. And even little me was like, Fuck yeah. <laughs> like, don't mess with USA, baby. Like, you know, mil- thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years before there, there would even be our precursors in the mammal world. Um, but so so the the discovering those big things, it was such a blast to come back to San Diego Comic-Con and do Dadlands, the Dadlands one shot yes. with you guys. Oh, truly what a marvelous blast that was, Uh, uh, a dream come true. Um, 
what I want to talk about is, you know, th this is something that's very, very cool because we, we've had a lot of people on the show who have been playing D&D &D, uh, uh, some since they were kids. Some people have found it in the last couple of years. Some people come to actual play um, from other pursuits. Like they, they find success or, they, or, or they're like, oh, I'm a voice actor or I'm a stage actor or I'm a comedian right. and I come into this other thing. The Adventure Zone, you know, was a, like, the thing. When I submitted um, the, the, like, document for Dimension 20, and I was talking about the actual play space and, like, what different shows were doing, the Adventure Zone was, I was like, this is a perfect mixture of comedy and heart, and there's so much heart in it. Uh, and so much love between this family. And it's also gut-bustingly funny. It pulls off this tonal pirouette of being able to do this thing that is like, no, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have the gut-wrenching character catharsis and you can be totally balls-to-the-wall goofy. Yeah. Um, and the Adventure Zone started, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I'll let me turn it over to you. Yeah. As one of the foundational actual play texts, like when people 50 years from now come back and study actual play and they're like, how did this pop off into this new medium? The Adventure Zone is going to be one of the major tent poles of that that they talk about. Like looking at where you guys are now in the midst of graduation, returning back to D&D 5e, it's so goddamn fun. Um, and where you guys started, What's the origin story of the Adventure Zone, and what was it like starting out back in those murky beginning days, and now continuing that trajectory with your family? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love the idea of like uh, the Adventure Zone being studied academically fifty years from now, and somebody having to like write about the the, the mini boner jokes, <laughs> the uh, the catalog of uh, I, our their team name was Trace Horny Boys, which was just like an offhanded joke that they just kept saying, and so it, anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, the Adventure Zone basically came out of uh, Justin and his wife uh, had just had their first child. And it was the first child that any of us had had. And so we were planning to, to give Justin as much like paternity leave as we possibly could by banking episodes. Um, and one of those episodes that we recorded was the Adventure Zone, which mostly came out of I, I was uh, writing for Polygon at the time when I I, I left Polygon in 2018. Um, but before that, I was just doing video stuff. Um, but when I first started, I was writing and I was writing about 5e and it just sounded so fun. My original exposure to D&D was fourth edition, which I got into, speaking of actual play shows, through uh, Chris Perkins and the Penny Arcade uh, Acquisitions Inc. podcast. Like we, we really liked those, those shows. Um, well, like when I just graduated from college, I like listened to them all the time uh, on road trips and stuff like that. So that got me into a group kind of uh, with some folks in Cincinnati that I didn't know, just a friendly local game store, like uh, pug group. And uh, it was fun, but not exactly what I was looking for because I wanted to play with people I felt like really comfortable with. So when fifth edition came out and I wrote about it and I studied it and it sounded really cool, I pitched it to Justin and Travis and our dad, who was also on the show, uh, as something that would be fun to do is just this filler episode because I knew because they had removed a lot of the um, tabletop sort of strategy game elements of fourth edition, which was very content. I get flack for saying this, but like 
I feel like it was way more contingent on having the board out in front of you and having the physical pieces. And that's not how we play fifth edition at all. And because I think fifth edition is much more conducive to a podcast to just like speaking and theater of the mind stuff is douchey a term as that is. Um, so we, we made this episode and I was DMing off of the lost minds of Fandelver, which is like the starter kit. Like if you played fifth edition, the first few years that it was out, like you played that campaign, but a few episodes in, uh, after the audience was like, Hey, we like this, keep making this. Uh, I just went off book and never really came back. And I think that's what defines sort of the, the genre bending and like tone bending sort of nature of, of what that show turned into. Uh, so that is a, that's a, 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 like a very, and I totally hear what you're saying about 5e as well of like, there's so much about the system that lessens that need for crunch that allows you to play it a lot more in that more narrative focused way, right? A right. lot, you are not required to have a battle map in front of you uh, in order to be able to play that edition. Right. Um, now, Looking at that beginning, how how soon after the first Adventure Zone episode drops do you and your family look at each other and go, we there we should maybe consider doing more of this? Like, was it an immediate response? Or yeah, it was the same day. It was like um, we posted it on our, on the My Brother, My Brother and Me feed. So like the audience for it was built in and it was just like universal like folks were coming out for it because i think that uh i mean crit roll was doing it at, at the time this was 2014 right I, I don't have a like complete calendar of who started mm -hmm. doing what when but people were aware of this genre and uh you know people were aware of dungeons and dragons and, and role-playing games even though we weren't necessarily so yeah we got a bunch of tweets saying like hey you should do more of this and we had so much fun recording it. I think we actually recorded the two first two episodes in one one big session. We had so much fun doing that and we were all so hungry for uh, a, a group to play Dungeons and Dragons with that like it was an easy yes. Um but I don't I don't think it turned uh, that was like an initial groundswell that like convinced us to do the show. I think it wasn't until you know, we were a dozen or so episodes in where like it started to like really seemed like something that could be that could overtake my brother my brother and me which we'd started doing in 2010 um so yeah that 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 show that first season balance really grew in these like huge unpredictable waves that got a little scary to uh try and keep up with well it's a beautiful arc and i'll say this too this is something that i've, I've said a lot on like the the embrace of actual play within the larger sphere of like media consumption, right? Like the fact that college humor created an actual play show, right. you know, 10 years after it, like, which was, if you, if you had told me back when I was a huge college humor fan that like, when I was watching, you know, Jake and Amir and, you know, Gail Beggy by Josh Rubin and like the, you know, the, the streeter versus Amir prank wars thing. If you were like, Hey, like, you know, eight years down the line, this company's going to hire you to do two and a half hour episodes of you and your friends playing D&D. Yeah. I would be like, this lie you're telling me is so mean to me to get my hopes up in this way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why you're doing this. But to to look at the trajectory of that too for a second, it, it is this 
like you're saying, it, this all this stuff kind of came around at the same time because you found 5e, what, like probably like a year? I, again, the timeline is fuzzy for me too, but not too long after 5e was released, I feel like you no, guys- No, when I was, I was writing about it before it was released. I was, I, we were like previewing it because Polygon is a, a you know, a games website. And so we were, uh, you know, writing up all these changes. So like I had this desire to want to play for a while before uh, before we recorded the, the pilot of, of Taz. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, so this this thing comes, so it's this, it's this perfect storm of factors, right? In that there's, we're in the, you know, you're in the midst of the beginning of like Twitch and live streaming in a full scale podcast renaissance writ large across just like the world, which anytime technological means become more within people's grasp, anywhere in the history of the world, you see huge blooms of artistic expression, creativity. Sure. And then for D&D &D to make this version of itself that becomes so much more accessible and a little bit more inviting to new players, uh, uh, it's just so, so awesome. Um, but so I think it's so interesting to talk about because one of the things that we definitely experienced with Dimension 20 is D&D &D actual play media is so interesting because people are consuming two narratives at the same time, right? Yeah. You're consuming the in-world narrative, which is this fantastical epic adventure. And then, you know, College Humor had its hardly working series for years, like, you know, 15 years or whatever of like, hey, we use our real names, us at the office, our characters, um, which when we started doing Dimension 20 was a huge part of, I think, the appeal of the show. And you're talking about releasing this to Mabimban fans yeah. in that way of like, what a cool way to get to consume two narratives at once of, you know, like this family that I love and think is hysterical that I get to watch a reality or listen to a reality show about mm -hmm. while also consuming full-scale fantasy epic storytelling. Um, I don't, I, and I don't even think those two are mutually exclusive, like, at all, uh, mm -hmm. which is something that we've, like, really learned, uh, I guess, the hard way in, in, in doing the rest of the show, because I would argue, like, that balance between the two narratives of, like, in-world storytelling and, like, us doing a funny podcast mm -hmm. was weighted way towards the latter when we started doing it and we didn't take the game very seriously. And that was when, when wild stuff happened in the game and I allowed it and it was like funny that this stuff was happening. That is like linked to us and us like not taking the game, especially seriously or not like enforcing the rules, especially seriously. Um, and by the end of balance, like we were taking huge swings to, uh, you know, deliver this like satisfying conclusion, this like narrative. And so we got like not much of that. It was way he more heavily weighted towards the uh, let's let's just try and tell a really great story uh, uh, side of things. And I think where we have struggled after balance, and I'm really happy with the stuff we've done after balance, but like I think it's kind of hard to go back to being silly and being sort of like, Lighthearted, and that's not to say we don't joke when you know we were doing amnesty or when we we're doing graduation, but it is really hard to flip that switch off of let's go for those, let's go for storytelling, let's go for character building, let's go for world building, and let's be funny while we do it, but let's take it really seriously. And I think that you've got to have, you have to care about the people playing the game before you care about the story that they're telling, because I, I don't, I don't think it works the other way around. I think that's really 
insightful. And I think too, that there's a, an element of, how do you put it? Like, um, the idea of what you're building in that early part of the campaign. Cause I think that every person who's played this game and you can be the best dramatic storyteller in the world, but everyone has had the experience of, oh man, a one-off joke turned into a beloved recurring character that now has been threatened by an act of combat. And we're in a death scene and everyone's crying, how did this joke become so beloved? In other words, like the natural inclination of the game to take things that are frivolous or glib in the moment. And then yeah. you're like, oh, oop, I fell in love with a joke. Oh no. That's, that's the best thing we can do with like this this specific version of of role-playing game playing, role-playing mm -hmm. game playing mm -hmm. uh, for actual play because uh, the, the, the other way of doing it is like coming up with this tome of characters and world logic and um, history and all of these things and then trying to give that to the players and trying to give that to the audience in a way that in a, a sort of traditional storytelling sense is how you sort of build up things. Um, but that way of doing it, of here's a joke that turned into something huge and serious, and now we're crying because they died. That is, and from from my perspective, that is better. Like that's more enjoyable and more special. But more specifically, like it is more. It involves the audience more in a way that you just can't do with other types of podcasts. Um, like you, you them like uh, making jokes about this character who is now like ascended to this, uh, you know, uh, a very important NPC realm. Like that's a decision they also made. And so by like leaning on that, you are reinforcing their decision to care about that character. Um, which is, you know, from a crafts point of view, like that's, that's good marketing, I guess that's good. Like working with the community, but I'm more excited about that from like a storytelling perspective. Uh, the thing I keep coming back to is in talking about like beloved uh, characters who were just a joke to start out with was uh, from uh, one of my favorite actual play podcasts, Friends at the Table. They had a season called uh, Counterweight that absolutely rules. Uh, but there's a character named Laser Ted who like worked at a space Kinkos. And like laser Ted turned into an incredibly important character and like everybody loves laser Ted. And so like, that is what I come back to is, is just always laser Ted is the pinnacle of what you can achieve with uh, actual play storytelling. God, that is so, yeah. Friends at the table, an incredible podcast that people should definitely, definitely check out. Um, uh, the, I think that there's something very interesting here that I want to get into as well for people running home games too. I would love to hear about like, cause by the time you jumped into the hot seat for um, uh, for the original, the adventure center for a balance arc, right? Um, how many like hours had you logged running tabletop by the time you like jumped in there? None hours, zero, <laughs> none hours. But like somebody had to do it, none of us had done it. And so I was the one who had like, been looking at this game and learning it. it it really boiled down to i knew the rules the best because yeah. i had like i had a, a player's handbook before we were playing like i was just uh it was the first time i got like really interested in role-playing games like the meat of them the rules of them uh much <laughs> you may not believe that if you've listened to balance but like 
uh, so that's why I I volunteered to DM because like the others like didn't really super want to do it. But no, I had played a little bit. Again, I had this group in Cincinnati uh, that I played maybe half a dozen times with, and then I played like one session of 4E back in my hometown like once. So like no, I was coming at this pretty fresh. It is so wild to to um, to think of someone stepping up for, like first time at home plate and hitting the balance arc out of the fucking ballpark. It's so goddamn cool. Well, it also, you know, it's very sad because uh, I obviously have been playing since I was 10 years old and there's a, and there's this weird thing where I think people go, oh, like I'm not ready to DM or I'm not whatever. And the thing I keep saying over and over again is like, you don't need practice at the, at the, like if you're playing with people you like, if you like the rules are not gonna get in your way, you don't need to, in other words, the role of being like a referee is such a third tier consideration for being a DM. When yeah. the main thing is, do you have the ability to love the player characters and be psyched about the choices they're making and to create and imagine this fascinating world with this unfolding story? That's in it. it. Like it's so much easier to do it that way too. I think it's, I, uh, we talk a lot. I feel like the trope of like the uh, embattled <laughs> game master is, is true in a lot of respects, but I also feel like for that first session, um, it doesn't have to be scary because what you learn throughout, like what we've learned throughout playing role-playing games for, you know, six years now is if you, if you come at it and try and combat those nerves for you and like your first time players by like trying to like token it up and like be super, super, super serious, uh, exposition heavy, all that stuff, instead of just like, Hey guys, let's just, Let's have some fun and here's your characters and they're cool. And uh, if you want to do something with one of your characters, you tell me and I'll figure out a way to, to make it work. But yeah, you're it's why the like bar room scene, the tavern scene is the quintessential starting point because like it's made for, for that kind of introduction. Mm. And what you learn is like that's not fluff and it's not filler and it's not um, the 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 demo it's not the the audition for the season like that stuff is just as important as the big like big character moments big dramatic beats uh all that stuff like you have to have that stuff and trying to jump over that because you feel like that's what it means to like be a strong dm is like uh and it, not only is it a mistake but like you're choosing the unnecessarily hard route um, yes. which I wish somebody would have told me, uh, <laughs> a while ago. well, I love that thing too. Also like shout out to fluff in general and, and those moments of, there's a great, there's a great storytelling technique. It's actually from filmmaking that Akira Kurosawa talked about a lot in his films and in seven Sam, this is like the, the, the film film school. Uh, yeah. major coming out of me but there's a great series of shots right before the big climactic final battle in seven samurai it's like a it's like a two and a half minute montage of the village getting downpoured in rain and these beautiful shots of just like buckets collecting rainwater and rain splashing in the street and you know that the final battle is about to happen and uh, like the director basically just explains like if I show you the condensed version of this, which is, you know, 60 minutes of swords clattering off each other, by the by the you know, the 30th second of that hour, you've become completely inured to right. 
why this matters or what this is. And it's like, I'm about to show you bloodshed and screaming and horror. I need to show you two minutes of rain falling on the village. Like I need, like, it's not fluff. It's not a waste of time. It's it taking this moment to show you the different other things. So I love that. that it's, idea. it's like this. It's like the inverse of tragedy is comedy plus time or comedy is tragedy plus time. The inverse of it is like tr tr tragedy is comedy plus time plus, time. Pl plus tragedy. <laughs> like you people are, people love, you know, the laser Ted's a joke, but becomes like an important NPC. Like that's not then like big news that has stopped being a joke. Like now it's a, now it's a, a character that you care about. Uh, and that, that shift is something we did like completely unknowingly, completely, I would say accidentally, but also like, I think the best we have done it uh, because we started from that, let's just have fun position. I feel like if that's your guiding light, whenever you start, you know, your first session, you're gonna be like, it's hard actually to screw it up from that point. It, the game does seem to inexorably draw you towards caring about these things. Like I've always said, the the if you have players that are really not performers at heart, and you're trying to break that emotional wall, you're trying to get them get them to fall. You know, I think yeah. I think you know, people that run games know what I mean. You're trying to get them to to buy in, to have that investment, right? The first crack in the wall is always them just liking something. The first crack in the dam is always you're like, okay, you guys get to the town square and you see here's bu Bubbles. He's the town. He's a little jelly bean man. And it's like, hey. And people are like, this fucking guy. I'm into this guy. And it's like, that's the first little thing you need. The first little, okay, I got you to care about something, right? That was Barry Blue Jeans for us. Just a character <laughs> whose name was, I forget, like his Sildar Hallwinter, I think, is the name of the character from the Lost Minds of Fandelver. And I said that and like Justin groaned. And I was like, okay, I can change it about Barry Blue Jeans. And then like, that was, that was, that was episode one, I think. And we very quickly, like that, I think gave me permission to pivot off the books. Just that one decision. That's what I want to talk about though for a second here, which is something that I think is really singular. And is if you're listening to Balance for the first time, first of all, I envy you. Second of all, it's an amazing thing to, because different DMs have different superpowers, right? Everyone has their own suite of abilities. What's incredible to me about listening to, and in fact, re-listening to Balance is the idea of you were starting off, as you said, you'd played a half dozen times, first time in the hot seat, and you as a dungeon master had an intuitive, immediate ability to know uh, what was diamond and what was rough. You're like, here's what here's what I can throw out right away that is just slowing me down. This is the albatross around my neck. This is the shit that matters. And it's re really deeply insightful and very cool. And and I would love to hear you talk about because I think that a lot a lot of the questions we get on the show are people struggling with that. Are yeah. feeling tied to the rails whether they're homebrew or not, whether they're rails written by Wizards of the Coast or whether they're rails that were just created by you in your prep time, feeling this sense of being tied down. And you, amongst all these dungeon masters that I love, have always seemed to expertly know what is vital and what is not vital. Um, I would love to hear about like what you think that inner compass is and how it developed over time because you can listen to balance and see 
you quickly going like, cool, this is Lost Minds of Fandelver. We got some rooms in this dungeon. And then ramp up immediately to like, oh, I am coming into an awareness of the full power of what this can do. Yeah. What what were those like level up moments for you as a DM uh, starting at the beginning and going through that first arc? So to answer a few of the the, the points there, I feel like uh, the that intuition that you referenced was very kind uh, of you to say. Uh, I think nearly all of that, at least early on in Adventure Zone, stemmed from the fact that uh, I'm playing with my family, who I know pretty well, and the fact that like I've been doing podcasts with Justin and Travis for a long time. So I can tell when they get bored. Like I can tell when they are turned off by something by like uh if you know tonal conflict like oh this is not this is a little too like high fantasy for us um and so i i it was really easy for me to pick up but pick up on on that when they were like falling asleep at the table um but then you know that also like i i didn't nail it every time we had a i think like episode five or six we had to fully fucking re-record uh, because it was bad. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss here. I apologize. Yes, you're absolutely allowed to cuss. Cool. Um, we, it was like in the mine. It was like in the mine and they were going through it and there was just a room with a bunch of skeletons in it and they fought them for 50 minutes and then that ended the episode. And I was like, the guys, that sucked. That was a bad episode of this show. Uh, so we just scrapped it and uh, I think that was a big lesson for me of like what, Justin, Travis, and Dad want to do, and like what makes good radio, um, because those two things are. I, I feel like I have been at it for so long. Like I know what makes good radio, and I know how to keep my family like engaged with stuff. So it's 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 less like a narrative thing. It's less me, you know, weighing it against my own expectations of, you know, fantasy or whatever genre uh, of literature or, or film or pop culture, or whatever I'm comparing it to. Uh, it's more like I'm trying to keep my I'm trying to keep my family from falling asleep. Um, although that might be like another benefit that I had coming into it is that because I hadn't um, I hadn't played D and D uh, and I I did not grow up on Tolkien and and literature. Like I didn't read that stuff until I was like a you know late high school. I grew up on video games, uh, which are I don't know. I feel like that's where I learned a lot of the story beats. Uh, and in video games, like to, to a fault, most of the time, like there's not a ton of like boring exposition because you could, you just stop playing it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that, that intuition, I think came from, from those things more than it did. Like, uh, you, you know, I was struck by lightning and then was good at dungeons and dragons. <laughs> well, so definitely, I think that's, that's a, a, beautiful lesson for people is this idea of your relationship to your players <clears throat> is about a zillion times more important than your relationship to the game yeah. whether the, you know like that you like the the player's hand the dungeon master's guide is never going to pat you on the back after a session and say that was great but <laughs> Like you really yeah. did it. You really followed all the rules. Congratulations. Like only the joy, the joy of your players is the only real thing. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that idea of that is rooted in listening. It's rooted in that idea of feedback. It's rooted. And that feedback is both verbal and nonverbal. You're taking cues as much as you possibly can. I also want to talk about the idea of what your experience was like, because there's, I think there's a very interesting 
thing uh, with balance in particular of something that I don't know if everyone will be able to appreciate, but as someone who used to perform improv on stage, I can appreciate, which is the idea of when we did like a 30 minute Herald on stage in New York, you have this, the structure of that is you have to reference what's already happened. So I want to hear also to go back to the question I asked before is the sort of second part of that question of like, what was your experience like as you rapidly leveled up and went from we're running Lost Minds of Fandelver to this is going to be deep exploration of character. This is going to be incredible plot twist. This is going to be X, Y, Z, other thing. Because it's what's an incredible thing about balance is the idea of starting, and again, the reason I'm relating it back to doing improv is the idea of you started with a module and that is canon and it's getting honored as yeah. you are rapidly going full Akira. You're like, you know, you're going galaxy brain of like, oh, I see what this game is possible. Was. So what was your process leveling up as a DM and still honoring what you had done at the beginning of the campaign? Yeah, uh, you referenced it earlier. I feel like... Um around like episode three or four when I started to really pivot and go off book. And then we did a couple episodes of, you know, me doing my own, my own story now, uh, not, not coming out of the book. Like I was, uh, like real, I became instantly kind of intoxicated by like the idea of we are now, we're not just doing a funny podcast anymore. Like if we had stuck with modules the whole time and like played their story with our characters, like we would have had like good character moments, I'm sure, but like it wouldn't really be our story or our world. And it became apparent that like we could make that, like we could make a world, we could make a, we could make a story that is a new story that like nobody's heard before, which is such a like, I don't know, primitive realization. But um, I think that that realization came in around the same time that I realized that like 5e rules are actually really flexible if you want to try and do different stuff with them. Um, so for me, like the, the first big realization is I, I want to play with genre because that's something I like adore is um, not being sort of tied down by a specific genre and chasing it. It's why like we couldn't do just high fantasy the whole time because like that's just not something I'm interested in. But all of my family members are like super into like Poirot and uh, Agatha Christie novels and stuff like that. And so the very next thing I did after the the sort of modified Fandelver arc was uh, a, a murder mystery on a train. And then like they were all into that because I knew they would be because I know them well enough. Uh, and then, like, after that went well, I was like, well, if we can do a murder mystery in this Dungeons & Dragons campaign, like, we can do fucking anything we want. And so, like, we just kind of, I gave myself permission to, like, take the limiters off of, like, any sort of idea for a, uh, for an arc that I had. And, um, yeah, it, it, it turned out the way that it turned out. Uh, it was well, such a beautiful thing, too, because I think that, again, it's, it is a perfect case study in, and I think that there's there is a really overly simplistic dichotomy between streams or actual plays that are like rules heavy versus ones that are rules light. I think a lot gets missed in trying to boil it down to that. I think what I love and, and honestly took away in my own style from the Adventure Zone is the idea of it's not rules light. It is just a actual like 
understanding of the of the profound truth that you only ever need the role happening right now to convey the weight and stakes of this moment, yeah. right? It's like, and the system can have flexibility because again, this whole idea of fairness, there is no ref from Hasbro in the room with you <laughs> while this shit is going on. There's just not. So in terms of adjudicating fairness, eyeball your players and go like here's the dc or here's the monster like is this are we all feeling good about like if i'm going to ask you to make a role or i'm going to set something up ahead of you all i need is the buy-in for like this moment that we're doing right now and in terms of you like playing with the rules adjusting things finding different ways to do challenges or to set up different genres or moods with the roles i i think it was what i love about it is it's again saying rules light implies this glib kind of dismissal of the rules of the game which is the opposite of what's happening which is rather just looking at the rules of the game and looking at the game system as being a tool intended for artistic expression and you're a just prompt, you a prompt is the way that we usually talk about it. Like that was Justin always talks about that during live shows when he plays tacos. He has all these spell cards because I also don't force them to memorize spells. I just let them do whatever they want, mm -hmm. uh, which is like ooh, I now realize now that I'm playing a spellcaster in Travis's game, horrifically overpowered. Um, <laughs> but it, it led to some funny moments. So who cares? But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, the other thing is, like, if your players aren't having a fun time because of the rules, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, go play, <laughs> go play Monopoly. Like, go play something else. Uh, you can, you can change them and interpret them and use them or ignore them, however, however you want. I think it's important for for restrictions to be there. Like, there has to be. Uh, I, I, it's so funny that you talk about the Adventure Zone being an example of this, because I really feel like Tiny Heist was like a, a the, when you DM'd for us, it was eye-opening in how little you let us like get away with, and yet cool shit happened, and it felt like it mattered a lot more, which was like a totally different way of doing things, and you know, uh, we were failing forward almost mm -hmm. every time that we messed up, we were failing forward and usually forward into a, a worse situation, but it wasn't just like, yeah, yeah, you tried that thing and it didn't work. Next, like <laughs> there's there's so many different ways to do the, to handle the rules, but like there's no one right way. And so like that really, we've said it a few times now, like that really should not be something to be afraid of if you're like thinking about getting started DMing. I it's I deeply, deeply appreciate that. And again, as someone like myself, like I definitely would, would put myself on the, rules heavier side of things. I certainly fuck up all the time, but uh, but you know, there's a lot of goddamn rules in this game. Um, but I, to me, there is that thing of like, looking at what you're trying to chase them for. With Tiny Heist in particular, it's like, but again, it's looking at rules as a series of paintbrushes, looking at rules as a series of like, I'm using these as they are necessary to create a feeling, which is still rooted in my relationship with my players. So for you guys with Tiny Heist, using all those rules and having those high stakes and those high stakes roles was not something I did because I'm like, the books demand it, but rather to be like, heists yeah. need to feel hair-raisingly stressful for you to get that high at the end. Yes. It needs to be this solid weekend of just terror, and then you blam, run away. Uh, and definitely, we definitely have some awesome questions about Bean, who's one of my favorite characters of all time, and also a character who 
has, I think, the exact relationship in that heist of like terror, stress, panic, terror, stress, panic, terror, stress, panic, and then just the final episode of explosive and shenanigans. Like, and then he like kills like ten people in a <laughs> Mad Max like car battle. Yeah, I, uh, I really the morals were very flexible with these. <laughs> Uh, hey, listen, you know, Bean was taking some direct action against some ne'er-do-wells. Was it sure. violent, perhaps? But, you know, what can we say? Um, uh, I also want to talk a second, because we have a ton of audience questions to get to, but I want to talk a second, too, before we jump into them. Um, because uh, uh, I know that you are in preparation for a new season of The Adventure Zone. You're in preparation for a new world, new setting. Mm -hmm. Um uh, and obviously, the Adventure Zone has had some incredible storytelling, both with Graduation, uh, which is Travis's awesome campaign setting in World, with Amnesty, which was a different system entirely, yeah. uh, uh, an incredibly different world, both tonally and in terms of world building. You know, it's taking place in Earth, in like a, the uh, like a version of our real world, right? Um, as you're sitting down for this new setting, new season, new campaign. Um, uh, what are the, like, uh, the things that feel very different in terms of how you think about preparing a world and homebrewing a world after having so many notches in the belt? Yeah, uh, I think, um, I, I am going to handle it, or at least I hope I, I can way more towards the side of less prep and more just like leaning into the 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 players decisions um so much so that like i really want to do a world building game like a like an a quiet year or um uh king kingdom i think is another one kingdoms mm -hmm. uh to like make make the world collaboratively instead of me just like decreeing all of these rules that and and introducing all of these characters that you all must memorize by next thursday or like that uh, I, I'm more interested in that. And then I'm also more interested in like having more of the story and drama come out of the the game and the improvisation and reacting to what happens instead of just like preparing a huge thing. Because like even in Amnesty, I tried to make it more flexible and Amnesty certainly went like way off the rails and I really didn't know how it was gonna end until like a few episodes before it ended. Um, but it's still like I had a, you know, 15,000 page <laughs> word document with like all that stuff in it. Uh, but like I'm uh, my wife and I are expecting our second child uh, in, uh, in, April, in April of next year. Yeah, we're really excited. But also like uh, I, I have this idea for a story and I'm excited to, to try and run it in, in fifth edition. But also like I'm not going to have the time that I had back in like 2015 to write a book like the balance. The balance document was huge stacks on stacks on stacks like it was enormous mm -hmm. because i loved playing the game and doing that show and i got so excited about it that i just spent all my free time working on the the text or working on uh the music or like all that stuff like i i have to find a way of like doing business we all do um where like i cannot do that stuff and still like have a good story and have a good show and like there's a, the obvious answer to that is just like being less concerned about introducing this enormous world and these, you know, billions of characters that I had like from from the get go, which is something you know I've done every season. I feel like uh, certainly in Amnesty, and more just like take it one step at a time, see where the 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 
the dice land and see what kind of decisions Justin, Travis, and Dad make, and then like go into it. I'm introducing like a, another big idea I have is like um, introducing like a lot of sort of video gamey random events into it. I love the wild magic sorcerer I'm playing now where he has the wild magic table and you roll a 1D hundred and just like anything can happen. Anything can come out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of having something like that for like a random events thing is like so cool to me. And yeah. the exact amount of like a challenge I want to like pose to me and Justin and Travis and dad to like tell a story with that sort of like stochastic element, like really built into the the bones of it. Um, so like I, I have a lot of stuff figured out in terms of like the genre and hopefully like the tone I want to shoot for, but I'm leaving a lot of it like just up up for our group decision playing like a, a, a world building game because one, I think it gets an instant investment from everybody who's playing, but two, like I think it will reflect a new style of production that I'm going to have to lean on once I've got a, you know, a newborn to uh, keep alive again. Hey, I think that that's something that we try to be very cognizant about on the vodcast here as well, is that like most people who are running games are doing so in their free time. Like with, with the rare exception of people who have the luxury and privilege of being able to do professional actual play. And even with that, you're balancing that against a zillion other considerations of, of whatever running that show entails. Like protecting and guarding your time carefully and making smart decisions in terms of your preparation to be realistic about what you are able to do in your free time is, I think, a big part of the gig if you're running an ongoing campaign. And it's not even a bad thing for your game because like I've been talking about, like basically this whole episode is like the fluff, the jokes, the 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 lightweight, getting your feet wet, joking around stuff mm -hmm. is so important. It is an important thing to have in your in your budding world and in your your gaming group. Like you, it's really important to have that stuff. I genuinely believe that. I think it's a mistake to jump straight to Game of Thrones. Like it's, it's. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a good idea to do that. And so, like that's where that's hopefully where I'm going to aim aim the ship in uh, in the next season. Well, it's a really interesting thing, right? Because like there are a ton of like in terms of creating these rich, textured, really intense backgrounds to worlds that you are playing in. Like there are, I've noticed something in everything I've run and I've run a lot of stuff that had crazy lore and history and tons of background, yada, yada. And then I've run stuff that's been like none of that at all, like so bare bones. You know, the the world map for Tiny Heist was literally like the lane that it was, ha you know, it was, it was like perfect. It was so I loved the idea of a, of something condensed like that. Like it's it is, I think, just a, a really more it, it's something that I feel like everybody gets more excited about because like you can remember it and you can visualize it and that stuff is so important. And the perspective is there. And I think that what's interesting is even if you're doing the big expansive words, which there are ways to do, it's important to remember that your PCs are never gonna remember the whole lore document. Things are going to be, you know what's funny is, is if you play a long running campaign, you begin to actually see the different, you ever see that the video of scuba divers in those caves in South America where there's, they're in an underwater yeah. cave, but there's two different types of water. So there's like, a, there's like a surface level of water underneath while they're in water. That's, how I feel about 
backstory the DM wrote before the campaign started or backstory that PCs wrote about their character before the game started. And as the game goes along and people actually have lived memory of playing their characters. Right. It's all backstory, but the richness of backstory that actually gets to live and survive based on real play memories at the table is always just like a richer, juicier, like, and but the example I'll use is you have two different villains, right? One villain betrayed a player character in their backstory before session one. Another villain betrayed them in session 20 and was actually their friend beforehand. The degree to which your players will truly hate that second villain more that yeah. they have the lived memory of being betrayed by. So like, I think that's a huge stroke in favor of, if you have to consolidate your time, building lore and backstory into your world as you are playing it is gonna have that richness. The, the soil's just so much richer when yeah. the memories happen IRL. Yeah. Uh, um, we have so many questions to get to and I wanna jump into them. Um, uh, but, but, um, here's a, oh, there's so many. Uh, people are so psyched to ask you <laughs> questions. Um, I'm just, ah! um, uh, this one is uh, from Keegan G. Thanks, Keegan G. Uh, how do you approach the transition between playing with a micro view moment by moment versus the macro view? abstracted roles or narration that cover larger periods or actions. It sort of sounds like they're describing downtime here. Um, yeah, or, uh, or just like broad macro world development that isn't just like the moment to moment mm -hmm. thing, like the campaign instead of just the arc or the episode or the session or whatever. Right, uh, they follow it up with, I often see newer GMs work exclusively in the micro, exhausting themselves because they feel like they can't just cut away from a scene when needed. Yeah, how do you approach the transition between micro and macro in your campaigns? Um, it's something that like, I, I think I tried to find, no pun intended, the balance of imbalance of just like, um, because I was getting a lot of like fair criticism that I was railroading them through these, through these campaigns. And while I tried to like, let them do their own thing when it came time for, you know, the more gamey parts to happen. And like, we got a, like a lot of really great stuff out of that. I feel like I was pushing them like down this critical path towards, this 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 very uh abstract story that i was like starting to form um so what i tried to do was like really let them take control of the micro like let them i would i would prep for an episode and then i would sit down and run the game and let them do whatever they wanted and then when the session was over i would go off and then i would think about the macro and i would think about like what my role in the next session in the next sort of micro field could be to sort of move things in that in that more macro direction which is i i think a pretty effective like it was the, certainly the i think the best way that i can handle that because i feel like if you do that you know just have session after session after session after session of just you know encounter after encounter after encounter like, yeah, you do get burnt out and you, you sacrifice some of those like deeper attachments you can have to the characters. But like on the inverse, if you just go macro, 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 like uh, the same thing happens, honestly, like the same thing happens because you need to be able to zoom in and take things uh, kind of slow sometimes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's finding a mix I think is important, but I also think macro storytelling is like way easier to do by yourself 
yeah. as a as a reaction to the player's choices. I think that is that is such an important crystallization of how you should be thinking about your the two halves of your role, the DM at the table and the DM away from the table. Because one of the things I've always tried to stress is DMs should be giddy to take L's at the table, right? Should be giddy to get whomped, should be giddy to have their plans get blown up because you are the house and the house always wins. Yeah. Your monster died? Oh no, where are you gonna get another monster? Oh, that's <laughs> right, the whole world is your that, goddamn imagination. <laughs> like, that person still mystifies me. Like I try, <laughs> I try to be like different strokes for different folks. Like everybody DMs a certain way, but like, I've never understood the hostile DM. Like you're not, you're, I don't know how to break this to you. You're not playing Dungeons and Dragons the way everybody else is. It's not like you're the other team. Yeah. Uh, and so like somebody who like really wants to mess you up and like takes, takes joy in that. Like, I don't understand Why, why is that fun for you? I don't get it. Well, it's also obviously someone with a huge misunderstanding of the, the, how the game structured itself. If you really wanted to kill your PCs, drop 20 terrorists on them. And then yeah. and then the game is over and everyone knows that you're a bad DM and they don't have to waste any more time. <laughs> this idea of actual, and like the idea of actual antagonism in a system in which the DM has complete carte blanche to introduce any <laughs> amount of challenges. Like yeah. even as a child, I was like, oh, clearly this role exists in service to the PCs and their yeah. story, because if there were any real antagonism, it would be over at once. Like, right. so it's, I think it's so funny. But to your point of that micro versus macro, like in the session, take L's, fall back, have your plans go awry, because what are you able to do as soon as the session ends? Go home, take stock, and use your infinite world building powers to figure out how to adjust your plans. That's something the PCs can't do. When the session ends the PCs, they have to go home and just go, man, that was cool. Have no idea what's coming next yeah. week. And like, what's a what's a kind of a bummer for us, and like like you said, we're very fortunate to get to do this professionally. So I try not to like complain very much, but like when we do that, when I do that for balance or amnesty or Travis does that for graduation, um, the audience doesn't see us ingesting their decisions to point the macro at something new yeah. and so it just reads as railroading like it just reads as like we're just doing our own we're just doing our own thing because they think we're just going ahead with our own plan when in reality when we're not recording the thing you don't get in a show is how the plans are adjusted or completely defined by the decisions that the players made. Like, I can't stress that enough. Amnesty, I it wasn't like balance. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. So I just paid attention to the decisions they were making and tried to fill in the next few steps. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, that makes perfect, perfect sense. And again, I think too that there's that like, in that, like, whatever you call it, like micro versus macro, or you're, you're there trying to like observe what you're paying attention to, what you're not paying attention to. Railroading is something that, that gets a very bad rap along with things like metagaming. There's certain things that are just seen as shorthands for bad. However, it's really important to acknowledge that part of the fun of the idea of being a hero is the idea of discovering the DM's rails 
and traveling them freely of your own volition. Like imagine the imagine like Star Wars: A New Hope, where like you know the farm on Tatooine the, is is the farm on Tatooine is burning, and Luke throws his hands up and says, "I guess the DM wants me to fight the Empire." Like <laughs> you would never <laughs> you would never say it. it's like. Yeah, there are some rails in this world, which is part of the joy. Like, right. like, you know, I think that part of the escapism of epic fantasy is the idea that there is a boiled down central conflict that can be resolved with some amount of orbs or swords being collected. <laughs> Sorry, I got you while you were drinking water. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, God, I wish I lived in a world where it was just about getting these goddamn orbs. Like... Uh, I, la I laughed at that, but the balance campaign essentially had <laughs> the seven dragon balls that they had to put together. No, you're 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 right. It's it's and that's honestly that's what I really really like about the season we're doing now, graduation, because Travis is DMing, and I know how hard he's working on it. But also, like, you know, the season started out as a sort of um, uh, academic role-playing game where we were, were students like learning how to be um, hinge people and sidekicks. And now is a story about like three just rapscallions trying to dismantle capitalism. Like it's just, it is the, the entire season has turned into us explicitly trying to implode all of these, like these world rules and standards that like exist. And it's so fun. Like, it's so satisfying. It is this weird, almost fourth wall breaking, uh, like, characters without an author, like, realizing, like, wait a minute, this yes. this sucks. Like, let's, let's go, you know, blow up a bank or whatever. Yeah, I think there's a very, so again, I think that there is a metaphor here to the idea of, yeah, like, it's so exciting when you discover what the task at hand is, which can seem like a railroad. And the only thing I think that people resent is if that railroad never has switches in the tracks, or yeah. if it never, or or if there's no ability to stop the train and get off and see a, a sleepy little town on the rail trail. And, you know, like, there are these moments that I think you want to have that, like, there is a, as not just again, no pun intended, there is a balance between this idea of a DM being like, you have to do exactly what I've laid out in front of you, or a DM doing what I think is equally bad, which is being like, you see a fantastical world. There are no obvious conflicts. Live your fantasy lives. Yeah. And I am just here to adjudicate your wishes. I will never tell you goddamn anything. <laughs> like there will, <laughs> like that's also frustrating. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, just sort of like thinking about the next season, I feel like balance, we like hit a really nice balance again. And in Amnesty, I, I leaned way more into the story-heavy railroady side. And for the next season, I wanted to see what it looks like on the like exact opposite side, where it's not pretty and it's not like as buttoned up and it's not as clean. Mm -hmm. But like, what other kinds of good stuff can come out of that, even if it's not like this perfect little sixty-minute drama with a, a nice little tagline button at the end of every episode? Like, yeah. No, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. This next question uh, comes to us uh, from Noah G. Thanks, Noah G. Um, 
Taz Amnesty convinced me to try out Monster of the Week, leading to an amazing year-long campaign with a ton of great people. You have notable experience across more than just D&D. If you were to DM again, is there anything you've learned from playing other systems to D&D, uh, or do you prefer to play other systems over 5e? That's a, it's a great question, but it's also like not one that I feel like I can give a great answer to because this, this next season, uh, we're, we're going to do fifth edition, but with uh, a lot of, uh, basically like a whole add on module that I've been working on, uh, to like deter, to, um, basically establish rules for ships and how ships work, uh, vehicles that will be important to the story and, you know, second homes to the characters who, who uh, maintain them. Um, and there's not, I think Wizards of the Coast has like started to, in like the unearthed arcana, like talk about ship rules and stuff like that. But there are other games. Uh, there are also other add-ons. One I was kind of working out of for a while was the Dogfighters Handbook, which is the same uh, it's basically the sequel to the Grease, the Greasers Handbook. I forget what it's called, but it's like all about fantasy mechs. I read that and I was like, "Ooh, that's." Good. I bought that like not wanting to even play it. I was just like, "How do you do mechs in Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition?" Mm -hmm. um, so those were important, but like all of them were way too crunchy for. Uh, well, my dad. Um, <laughs> but like, I also I think there's what's great about the uh, Monster of the Week and all of the Apocalypse World games is how they condense down these huge concepts and these huge sort of like um, par parts of playing a role playing game into these abstracted out roles where like the math of it is not you know how you've leveled up and how you've worked on X Y and Z and what subclass you picked and what it's just like somebody helped you out so you take plus one to that and uh you know whatever and then you roll two dice and it, that's that's it there's a game called um unexplored ah, i'm not gonna remember the name of it uh uncharted worlds i think is what it is it's a like a space opera pseudo like dungeon world rpg that like trade like buying things happens with a dice roll so like you have mm -hmm. you have cargo or you have like valuable things that somebody might want and you trade those in for like plus one to your dice roll and if you're like i want a new laser cannon for the ship you roll two dice to see if it works and you can get what you want at the cost that you want it instead of like you just found 25 gold and some emeralds worth 13 more gold and etc so like i that is the concept that i am uh, we're doing fifth edition, but that sort of abstracted storytelling that I think works better for my family, but also works better in a podcast is like the stuff I'm kind of leaning on for the for the homebrewy side of things. But there's no best game. Like I ran Amnesty. I ran. Um, uh, uh, oh, God, I ran Monster of the Week because that was I wanted to tell like a Buffy like story that took place in Appalachia. And like that was the game that was perfect for that. So. I love that so much. I think that, again, the flexibility you're describing and the ability of like modding these systems or hacking them. I remember like doing Dadlands with you guys and being, it was a system that had never been played before. And we started playing it and it was like so fun. And then we got to, it was like, you know, like 40 minutes in and we got to a roll and it was like, oh, this, like we sh there should be something that allows for you to sacrifice for someone else. I think it was your dad was gonna like, 
had to do a harder version of the challenge to cover everybody else in the challenge. Yeah. And it's like, that's nowhere in the rule system. But again, if you're playing with this idea of, look, these rules are only existing to map onto the feelings and tones and emotions of story beats. So just do what you need to do to the rules to make it feel like what you want that moment to feel like. Right. Um, uh, uh, which obviously is very easy for me to say, but I think that if you play games for a little while, you will, as going back to what we talked about before, you will begin to distinguish diamond from the rough, right? You will yeah. begin to say like, what is D&D &D really? You're rolling a D20 and you're trying to beat a number and you add bonuses based on if your character should succeed more of the time or less of the time based on this kind of role, right? Um, it's something and, you get better at, but I also think after one session, you'll you'll know the vibe of the room. And with that vibe, like, don't deny it. Like, if it didn't work and you feel uncomfortable about it, like, say, okay, next time let's get together and, like, let's not worry so much about finding treasure and buying spell components and, like, all that shit. If it's not fun and it makes people, like, not get into it, then... I remember we we modded out the 5e rules for Tiny Heist with like I think I made wealth a skill. So well so you just that's made dope. Like, that's a great and that's exactly that that condensation like that rules. That was such a good idea. It was just because it's one of those things where you go where you go like how much time do I really want to spend in this, right? Like this is the story of a heist. It's not the story of what they do with the money after the heist. So let's just right. make, let's just make wealth a skill check. Agnes has proficiency in wealth because she's loaded and we make it a role. So it, anytime you ask, can I go get this rather than me having to have mapped out the economy of this magical yeah. backyard, it's just like, let's find out if you can roll the dice. And what ends up happening is it gets the vibe you want of, Oh, collecting resource X is something that our plan hinges on, which means there's a moment of tension. How do we resolve moments of tension? We roll a fucking D20 and yeah. blam. Okay, we got it. Great, right? Um, I, I will say that the the way that you handled the economy in that game, if you had done it differently, we wouldn't have had the great scene where Justin and Travis's characters had to go sneak off to buy drugs. <laughs> like all joking aside, like that was such that was so weird and bad and funny, and it wouldn't have <laughs> happened if the, you know, if the guy had been like, okay, that'll be 10 golden orbs. Like yeah. The idea too of this, and it made a great scene. It made it was one of Cargo Jones's coolest thing that he like perfectly lied to this shady like I think it was a Mayfly drug dealer. But it I was will, yeah. Everybody everybody else's characters are like, okay, I'm gonna go map it out. Okay, I'm gonna sneak into the vents, and everybody left except their two characters, and they were like, well, I guess we're gonna go buy drugs now. <laughs> They needed to. The they drugs were for medicinal live. medicinal purposes. Sure. But it was it was sure. But it was very again very very funny to, to especially because Cargo and Rick Diggins were kind of like the the most tried and true old hands other than Agnes. You know, like they were the one, <laughs> the ones who were very much like kind of like you know masterminding. It was, it was a mastermind and an inquisitive rogue. And so they're like, great, everyone's got that covered. We gotta go get our fix. Um, <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, moving on to our next question, um, uh, this one is from Griffin McElroy? I guess the person changed their username to be your name, or you submitted this. Or was it? No, it was not me who submitted this. Um, the, uh, the question is, hey, Griffin, I just watched Tiny Heist and was so impressed with your ability to react to your... <laughs> it's very funny to think of you submitting this question. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> Hey, so... me, great job with that. So funny. 
uh, I just watched Tiny Heist and was so impressed with your ability to react to your dice rolls and narrate them in a way that honored your character. Ooh, a you in the word honored. This sounds like a British person. I would um, never, I would never do that. <laughs> Uh, honors your character. Where did you build the confidence slash skill required to do this? And do you have any advice for PCs on, oh, I love this, on interpreting their dice rolls or advice for DMs on allowing their PCs the permission to do that for themselves? Thank you so much. Yeah, this uh, this really came from um, when I was like working on Amnesty and like reading a bunch of Apocalypse World games and listening to a bunch of actual play podcasts that, that, that used that sort of, broad engine uh for for role playing um i i how should i put this i i just sort of came to realize that we had been playing dungeons and dragons in a way that was too mechanical and it was okay uh i make an attack roll on this guy okay i got a 15 that wasn't enough next person like instead of describing the action of what happened like what you do when you make if you ever say I make an attack roll against them, like that sucks because like you're not even saying what you're attacking with or like how you're using your, you know, broadsword or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I th I think a lot of that came from learning the hard way that we had sort of missed up on a uh, a lot of opportunities for better storytelling by being less descriptive about what was happening at the table and more descriptive about what was happening like in the story. Um, so yeah. Well, I love that idea too of like, um, again, this. I love that just baked into the question is this idea of interpreting your dice rolls, which that's the name of the game. The dice and the system are giving you flat numerical outcomes. It is right. your job to spin them into a story. And there, I think Bean is a great example of a character who both like spun failures into really interesting scenes. And then especially, spoiler alert for the last episode of Tiny Heist, spun some incredible successes into like amazingly creative, like again, spoilers for the last episode of, of Tiny Heist, but like the death of Felix Flick and the, the idea of you and Cargo, you, doing it in a way to get full revenge for the watermelon temple while also setting up cargo to do the same in this climactic, you know, it's the idea of the dice are promoting these directions, but it is up to you to spin them into a narrative that idea of interpreting dice rolls. Yeah. Uh, and I love the thing too, to give an example, like uh, you were talking about failing forward, right? People don't hate low dice rolls. They hate cognitive dissonance. And if you imagine your character as a badass and they are not doing badass stuff, it can be hard to experience that thing of, man, I thought my character was a hero, but the dice are telling me they're not. Bullshit. Failure can be heroic. If you get that 15 and the ace you're trying to hit is 16, all that you need to do is interpret that dice roll. You have a big barbarian swinging an ax, cool. You're wildly overextending and your fiendish opponent uh, laughs at you as they dip under your ax as you sink too deeply into your rage. They've goaded you into, and you go like, oh, this is like, this is how my character would fail. This is confirming what I already right. know about who I am. You hit that nat one, like if you like, it is so much better if someone's doing the thieves tool thing at the whatever vault door. If they hit a nat one and you're like, you shit your pants and you can't open the lock, 
terrible. Like that's so cognitively against. But if you literally go like you hit a thing, the alarm trips and you hear shouting and you know that you only have seconds to get hidden in this room. That's a worse outcome, but it confirms the genre. It makes the player yeah. feel like, oh damn, like my failure isn't about me being a loser. It's about how dangerous this situation is. I think that's what was so transformative for us after Tiny Heist, because we really were like, we were fired up after that, because it was the first time we had all played together and we had like so much fun doing it. But it also sort of introduced a different way of playing Dungeons and Dragons, which was, uh, I don't think any of us were certain we would succeed. Like I, I, I think there's a version of Tiny Heist where we don't get the uh, the loot and I don't know, maybe maybe you veiled it like well enough with with the your robust DMs toolkit, but like feeling that feeling like completely changed the whole game for us. So like I think leaning away from like this has to have a satisfying ending is like or this has to have some sort of satisfying story like resolution. So like, yeah, you shit your pants, try again. That's that's just not as good as like, hey, you might not win. Like you might lose one of you might die i'm not just going to give this to you because we're all telling a story together and stories have satisfying endings like you get the ending that you earned and that you played for and that like happened you don't get the just happy ending because of story tropes oh baby did i do my job that makes me so goddamn happy <laughs> well that is i think that is central to like again every dm has a different style they are and they are all beautiful and valid to me, something that I think really explains, both for people that don't like my DMing style or for people that do, is philosophically in everything I try to do, is I want to have a thorough enough feeling, of understanding of story that my player characters can live in the game not feeling like they have done a story until the end. Meaning I want my players in the moment that they're in Tiny Heist to feel first person, the sweat on their brow, the tension, the anger, to feel all those things because the experience, like characters in store, like, like how much would Lord of the Rings have sucked if like, if, you know, right when Frodo gets captured on the doors of Mordor, Samwise turns to the viewer and is like, I guess this is the dark night of the soul. Don't worry, it'll all turn out okay. <laughs> like, like, you don't want that. Sam needs to feel like it could all go wrong. And I, and I actually sometimes disagree with Dungeon Masters who are very much like, um, my play, like I want my player characters to hit these story beats as well. I respect that, but I'm like, no, no, no. I don't want my P I don't want the players at the table to be worrying about act structure. I want them to have the the full freedom and encouragement from me. Like, try your hardest. Go be the character. The character doesn't want to be in three act structure. The character wants the, the heist to work, and I want to give you the experience of having tried your hardest for the heist to work. And at the end of it, you'll get to look back and go, "Oh my God, that was three act structure." But I don't yeah. want you to have that until the end when you go, "Wow, I tried my hardest and was trying to win and emerged victorious." And look at that story that I got to live through while I was fully being in character. It's a scarier way to like visualize running the game, but it is also sort of like 
counterintuitively like the more narratively rich way of running the game like letting letting go of the reins a little bit ends up with like a better a better thing than if you had like really tried to map it all out because i i don't think anybody i i I think i would be hard pressed and i've been doing this for a while to like allow bad thing like truly bad uh, things that could derail the entire story to to happen. I've definitely let things happen that like changed where I thought the thing was going to go, or changed, you know, uh, had me toss out like some some chunk of script. But like, um, you know, having having some big catastrophic thing that could completely change the face of the story is something that like I would be afraid of losing the control to veto that. But I feel like if you do give up that control. You end up with something better than you would have had if you had just tried to hold on to the both thing, the thing with both hands. <laughs> yeah, it's again, it's really, really challenging. It's terrifying to, you know, it, it is terrifying because you're you're making a show, you're making a thing to to surrender that and be like, maybe this is not a happy ending. It's a terrifying thought. Um, but the, the, again, the, yeah, like the reward for that of the first time you see on your players' faces where they're like, oh, we're not destined to win? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, mwah, chef's kiss. I live for it. Um, uh, uh, awesome. Uh, we have time for like probably one or two more of these. Um, uh, uh, let's uh, let's see here. Ba, ba, ba. Um uh, this one is uh, Reese uh, from the Euro Division. Thanks, Reese. Um, uh, how do you go about creating atmosphere within your games? You bring a really grounded feeling to your worlds, and I would love tips. Tips about atmosphere. Yeah, it's that's a tough one for me to talk about my own stuff because I don't think I put like a ton of effort into that. I, I like you know looking at a. Whenever in in balance or amnesty or whatever, like when the characters show up to a new location, that's like one opportunity that you have like pretty authoritatively to just talk for a while and set things up without interruption and without things. So like uh, that is the most scripted that the show ever got. Um, and I tried to keep it down to like a, one or two paragraphs. Um, and so it's all about sort of an efficiency of language at that point, which is different from how you're probably going to do it at the table. Like we're doing a podcast with, you know, if it has too long a runtime, people are going to tune out. So we try to keep it tight. Um, but also like, I'm not a writer by trade. Um, I do writing now, but like I, I, uh, I never fancied myself a writer growing up. This, the balance was like the first thing that I really took an honest swing at. Um, so my grasp of like particularly floral language is mm. limited. Um, so I just try to be sort of ex as explicit as I can in a few words while also leaving the kinds of gaps in there that, that the listeners and players like want to fill out on their own. Um, so, you know, I describe like a biker bar and I'll talk about like the, there's like red neon and bikes parked outside and it's kind of uh it's kind of muggy outside and like then you can that's literally it you can fill out virtually everything there's a big uh puddle out in the parking lot that's always there that's always 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 there like that is that's the kind of description that i like where it's like something that's like uh 
not floral. It's not a uh, a, a gray pool of of miasma. It's just like no, there's a fucking puddle right there. You know, like how there's parking lots where there's always a puddle right there. Like that's. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. I love I love you say that first of all because I think again, floral language is great if you're trying to adopt a floral tone. Like if I was in some weird high elven oracles temple, I would probably talk about limpid pools. You know, yeah. like it's like limpid pools of mist clinging to the per the See, I we're in the midst of adapting all the all the stories, right, into graphic novels. So I am like relitigating a lot of the because I described some pretty holy temples with puddles in the parking lot, as opposed to. <laughs> but that's but I do I actually think it's very. There, there was an old uh, talking about like writing or vocabulary or even like improv specifically. Um, I remember someone saying something one time talking about like how how powerful language is to communicate tone. And the the example they used was was what would you rather get a hearty welcome or a cordial? Uh, how, would you rather get a hearty welcome or a cordial reception? And I was like, ooh, I'll get a hearty welcome, thanks. Cordial yeah. reception. And what they basically said was they were like, well, cordial reception means the same thing as hearty welcome. So so like even even the root words and the language is the same. So what's the deal? And I was like, I don't know, cordial reception just feels shitty. And they were like, well, let's examine the history behind that. Hearty welcome are German root words. Cordial reception is root Latin. There are class distinctions between the types of language people use. So when you think of a hearty welcome, you probably think of folksier people that are easier to be around than right. you would of a cordial reception. And they're like, especially if you grew up not upper class, not going to you know debutante balls or whatever, the idea of cordial reception probably gives you class anxiety. And it yeah. was this mind blowing thing of like, Oh, little shifts in how you describe something. So again, also what's nice thing about like a puddle in the parking lot that never goes away is there's it's evocative, right? Like how does the character approaching really know that the puddle never goes away other than a vibe? And the vibe is one of familiarity. Like you look at the puddle and you immediately know what kind of place this is. There's, I think those tools as a DM of where do you get evocative? Where do you use a metaphor? Where do you give the players extra insight of like, you meet the barkeep, you look at her and you realize like this woman has never said an unkind word in her life. And it's like, Oh, That's, it's a, yeah, that, yeah. As opposed to like the biker bar is made out of gray cinder blocks. And it's <laughs> one story like. I, that's and I don't mean to rag on people who do that, but it's like that's that doesn't matter. The color of the cinder blocks don't matter. Like what matters is like I tell you, there's a puddle in the parking lot, and you know a place like that, like a yeah. shitty place in, from your hometown that's just out like that. So now you now you have the tools to fill in the gaps however you want. I think that's and I do because I think that vibe is very important. And if you if 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 a completely tactical description of a location can communicate the vibe, then go for it. But again, like if I'm in a like, you know, a description of like a horrifying medieval dungeon, if you were to do it perfectly tactically of like a 15 by 15 cell, there are there is a sort of uh, soft forest green algae growing on the walls, uh, two pairs of chained manacles hang down, uh, and you see a figure with it. all of that. It, if it gets so sterile, you can be like, you see a damp, dark 
dungeon and the noise of the water dripping echoes in the cold of and you just go like yeah there are certain words that get the point across of how you are supposed to feel because that's what people want to know right and if you're getting like particularly inventive and buck wild about like where your characters are where they don't have a frame of reference for it that's where i think you can be like especially detailed because they need something to kind of like for one thing like visualize where this scene is taking place in case they need to explore that scene or use it for half cover or whatever yeah. um which i th I think that was a, a thing i really learned how to do in amnesty where it's like a lot of that story did take place in this small town in west virginia but sometimes you know they were diving into the corrupted heart of an alien planet and it's like okay for this i do need to bust <laughs> unpack my adjectives a little bit <laughs> Yeah, because if it's if it needs to feel grandiose, you're gonna need those grandiose words to make it yeah. feel that way. Um, this last question comes to us from Sarah. Uh, Sarah asks, um, and thank you, Sarah. Uh, how do you know when to start bringing a campaign to a close? Is it something that you discuss in depth with your players beforehand? Um, hmm. Where so we're kind of in the we're kind of talking about this now, right? Cause we're still doing graduation. We talked a lot about next season, but we're still, we still have, you know, a bit of graduation to go through, but it, I think everybody's got that intuition. Like I think everybody know, can feel when a movie's about to end, like all the, the pieces, once you start tying up pieces, like start tying up loose threads, mm -hmm. I feel like it's hard to stop because now you're, you know, we've one of the characters in, in graduation, like we have kind of like tied up a lot of their story background stuff. So they don't. But but uh, another player has a lot still outstanding and leaving those two at such an imbalance for too long, I feel like is is weird. So I, I, I just think that, like, you can sense when you've, you know, when you've reached the 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 climax or not necessarily the climax but the the rising action before the climax before it all just kind of stops um with balance i think it was pretty you know i mean because we broke it down into chapters i told them like this is the last arc uh am amnesty was somewhat the same way um but graduation is not separated by arcs so it's again like kind of exciting to not know where it's gonna go but we feel pretty confident that like okay if we're resolving stuff then i think that momentum is gonna carry us carry us through i think that is so goddamn dope and i think it, yeah it is a feeling i i would recommend discussing with your players i had the very funny thing of you know campaigns like when a campaign ends first of all most of my campaigns like a lot of people's have just fizzled right like just sure. like Oof, we stopped playing uh, uh when i was a kid i ran a campaign to conclusion because i thought the game was designed to end at 20th <laughs> level so i was like the story's over when you get to 28 level. Yeah. And then you wrap it up. Um, and then with Dimension 20, we have we pre-tape, so we have like set kind of like episode length. So we know the ending is in sight. But yeah, it uh I think that again, um, like you're saying, once some things start to wrap up, that's sort of where you're headed in the grand right. scheme of things. Um speaking of bringing things to a close, this has been such a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, we had so many great questions. Thank you to all our question askers. Uh, uh, so deeply insightful and awesome to talk to you, uh, Griffin. Thank you so much for being here today. This was a goddamn hoot. Yes, I agree. I love talking about uh, I love talking about this stuff. I, I love the insider sort of table talk. And you're uh, you're you're one of the greats, Brennan. 
one of the one of the, the tops. Oh my God! That to, coming from you, that means the absolute world. Uh, so excited, uh, uh, everyone! Obviously, uh, if you are watching this, I am sure you are familiar with the Adventure Zone. It, one of the all-time greats. Check out Graduation, and oh baby, am I looking forward to the mystery campaign now on the horizon as well. Uh, Griffin McElroy, thank you so much for being here today, uh, and for all of you watching at home. Uh, we'll see you next time on Adventuring Academy. Farewell.